Our text this morning is probably a familiar one to almost all of you. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we pray this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us our Savior in the Word and then you would hold it up as a mirror and we would behold ourselves. And we would see what we might become, what we will become, but also what we need to pursue becoming. So show us, Father, from the Word, what you have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about 11 or 12 years ago, I decided to take some classes at Western Dakota Tech, which is a community college in Rapid City. Um, I was working on trying to improve my knowledge of newer engines and engine controls with the idea of converting cars to run on natural gas or propane. I actually had a, a, a plan to dominate the world. I was going to, my business partner and I were going to get into the fuel business because we thought that natural gas was going to be the fuel of the future. Turns out after you mess with it a while, you figure out that's not so, but you know, you learn these things by doing them. And uh, so, so I, was, I was wanting to do that. I was wanting to understand variable valve timing and all these other things that could impact a natural gas system. But I was also wanting to work on my welding skills because part of converting vehicles to run on natural gas, you got to fabricate things and weld them together. And I was really out of practice. I used to be a pretty decent welder when I worked in the shipyard. Um, and I started, I, I got myself a welder and, and I, I started looking at the cost of the welding gas, the shielding gas and the wire and the electricity and the steel and all that stuff. And I figured out that it was cheaper to go to Western Dakota Tech and use their gas and their wire and their steel and their electricity and, uh, and, and save some money and then get a little help with my technique and maybe learn some new techniques. Now, there was a wonderful and an, a very unexpected benefit to all of this, because during orientation, anyone who's in the automotive program at any level at all got to meet with representatives of the professional tool manufacturers, in particular, uh, Snap-on and Mac and Matco and Cornwell and S&K, and you could buy tools, really good tools, really cheap. And these were tools that you absolutely needed for the program. And you bought them at a tremendous discount. Normally, Snap-on tools are ruinously expensive. And Matco and Mac are a little cheaper, but not much. And they're expensive because they're top-notch quality. And they're guaranteed forever. Uh, you can go to Harbor Freight, and you can get something that's theoretically guaranteed forever. But that just means they'll keep replacing it when it breaks. And they break a lot. But these tools are designed to be used day in and day out for a mechanic's entire career, they are literally a lifetime investment. And if you're a mechanic 
or if you're a tradesman of any kind, you know that high quality tools that you possess are absolutely necessary. Most other jobs, they give you what you need to do your job. But for most tradesmen, they have to buy their own tools. And the tradesman brings his tools to the job, and he can't do the job without the tools. For the tradesman, his tools are his life and his livelihood. Now, I announced last week that we're entering a new phase in the life of our church, and we're going to be giving very concrete nuts and bolts instruction on how to enter into a process of spiritual training with the goal of being transformed more and more into Christ-likeness. And I said this is an invitation. You can take me up on it if you want to, and you don't have to if you don't want to. But anyone who wants to can simply begin to make practical use of the things being taught. And if these things are intelligently and faithfully engaged in, and the grace of God meets your efforts, you will change. Change will occur. But there are tools that God gives us to help with this process as well. And for the next few weeks and months, we're going to look at the tools that we need to have in our toolkit for spiritual transformation. And the first tool that we're going to talk about this morning is very basic and very foundational. Uh, it's, the, it's sort of the, the 3H drive deep well socket set of the transformation toolbox. You use it for almost every job, and that is the renewed mind. Paul says in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now this is very important. This is foundational. Because your mind and what your mind is set on controls your life. So much so that Paul says in Romans 8 that where your mind is set, that is the things that habitually occupy your thoughts, is the key matter involved in the question of whether you will live forever or you will die forever. Heaven and hell are ultimately decided, humanly speaking, in your mind. And Paul says in Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Now, your mind was wholly set on the flesh before you came to Jesus Christ. And God regenerated your mind and He repaired it enough for you to become aware of Christ and to see the great beauty and the great goodness of the offer of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And because of that regenerated mind, in large part, you believed savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was just the first flickering of the match, lighting the kindling. And God has a purpose for your mind. And God's purpose for your mind is for it to become a bright, blazing, roaring fire full of knowledge and wisdom about the invisible realm and how to live in light of the existence and power of the invisible God and all that He makes available to us. And so the acquisition of knowledge is important, but only if it's done in the right way. Now, we sort of have two models of education in this country. 
In one model, the student accumulates and memorizes facts with the goal of being able to reproduce those facts on a test. And after the test is over, the student need not bother with that information ever again. Knowing the Battle of Hastings took place in 1066, or that Michael Collins was the first chairman of the provisional government of the Irish Republic, is not needed for the student to navigate his or her life, more than likely. I can remember sitting in math class after math class in high school and asking the teacher, when are we ever gonna use this? And I, I, the last time I worked a quadratic equation was my junior year in high school. I have not needed it since then. Thank you, Jesus, right? For me, that wasn't, you know, knowledge that was necessary for me to retain. Now, my dad's a little different. You know, he needed calculus and a bunch of other things like that for his work, so, so maybe that worked for him, but it, it, it wasn't relevant for me. Now, this model of learning, where you learn it, test it, and forget it, is not what we're after here. On the other hand, if you go to a trade school, they teach you to actually do the things that you need to be able to do to become a master craftsman in your trade. They teach you how to lay out a rafter and cut the bird's mouth in the right place. They teach you how to cut stringers for stairs. They teach you how to run a good vertical bead with a stick welder. They teach you how to set up a mill or a lathe and make a metal part. And you don't get to progress to the next thing until you show some proficiency with each thing that you've learned how to do. And the goal of these programs is to turn out men and women who can frame a house or weld a pipeline. And that's the model of learning that we're after here, where a master takes you and teaches you how to do the things that the master knows how to do so that you can do them for yourself so that one day you will be a master craftsman who teaches others. That's the model of learning we're after here. We don't simply want you to learn what Jesus said. We want you to become the kind of person who can reliably do the things that Jesus said to do. And your mind is indispensable for that. Now, it's important to understand how the mind works in interaction with the other parts of you, because the mind is the key. In particular, the mind interacts closely with the heart. Now, you will remember, I hope, that we have said more than once, the heart in the Bible is not the seat of the emotions. That's the guts, the splankna in Greek. The heart is the will or the spirit. It is the mainspring that runs your life. And, and there are three biblical names for the heart. The Bible refers to it as the heart to speak of its centrality in your life. The Bible refers to it as the spirit to speak to the fact that you are made in the image of God who is spirit and also to refer to the fact that this part of you is not physical. The mind is different than the brain. Now the mind interacts with the brain, but the mind is different from the brain. When you die, your brain will die, but your mind will still go on. God has a mind, but he doesn't have a brain. 
and it's not hurting him one bit not to have a brain. So your mind is invisible, all right? And, uh, and, and, and your heart is also invisible. Uh, the, the Bible refers to it as the will to speak to the fact that it's, the, its overall function in your life is to bring things about. But, but whether you use the name heart or spirit or will, we're talking about the same part of you. Okay? So what does the heart do? What's the function of the heart in your spiritual anatomy? Well, the heart is your wanter. Its job is to give your life direction through the mechanism of desire. That's, that's our fundamental nature. We are desiring creatures. God made us that way. And we can't live for very long without our lives being oriented by one desire or another. Clinical depression is basically a state of very low desire. And severe clinical depression is the total absence of desire and its agony. It just paralyzes you. you. You can't bring yourself to do anything because fundamentally you don't want to. And if it goes on too long, you can frequently lose the will even to live. Now, as I've said, the mind and the heart, they interact closely. And here's how that works. Your mind is where, is where thoughts and images and feelings reside. And your heart can't go about its job of being your wanter until it has something before it to either want or not want. And that's where the mind comes in. The job of the mind is to bring things, thoughts and images and feelings, before the heart and to show them to the heart and then to say to the heart, do you want this? And if the heart says, no, I don't want this, then the mind goes looking for something else that the heart might want. If the heart says, yes, then the mind starts working on how to get the thing that the heart wants. So on, for instance, Friday night, uh, my birthday, my wife wanted to take me and the kids out to dinner, and she said I was thinking either of Mexican or pho, which spelled P-H-O. If you've never had pho, you need to go try it. It's a Vietnamese chicken soup. It's the best chicken noodle soup on the planet. It is amazingly good, right? You can get it. There's two places in town you can get it. Just Google it. Um, we could have had pho or we could have had sushi. And she said, what do you want? Now, I love all three of those things. But my heart, as I, my mind presented them to my heart, as I was saying, what do I want? Uh, my mind was like, meh, for various reasons. Uh, it wasn't super impressed with any of those options. And then I remembered that I've been craving a nice seared medium rare steak for weeks now, and my mind pops its head in the door of my heart's office and says, Outback Steakhouse? And the heart says, oh, heck yeah. And my tummy said, I concur. And so we ended up at Outback, right? And that's how you make decisions. Your mind brings things to the heart and says, do you want this? Or do you want this? Well, here's the kicker. Your heart wants what it wants. Your heart's wants, whether they are good or bad, are just givens about you. You don't have any control whatsoever over the desires of your heart. 
Your heart just wants what it wants, and it doesn't want what it doesn't want, and you're not in control of that. You can't change that. If you could, you'd be thinner, right? I would, anyway. You'd be richer because you'd be saving money instead of spending it on silly things. You want what you want. Now, if your desires are to be changed from one thing to its opposite thing, God must do that for you. Last week I mentioned the doctrine of total depravity. Properly understood, the doctrine of total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as they possibly can be. Rather, it means that the totality of the human being is corrupted to one degree or another by the effects of the fall. So your mind is messed up, and your will is messed up, and, and your social relationships in, are messed up, and, and your body is messed up. All these things are messed up because of the fall. One of the places that total depravity is especially pernicious is in the area of the heart. Because the natural heart left to itself doesn't want God. It doesn't really want the good, not as God defines it. It, it, it might like to have the benefits that God grants, but it doesn't want God. It might make up a God for itself, a cosmic Santa Claus God uh, in, in its vain imaginings, but it doesn't want God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. The heart, the natural heart, wants to avoid God. And it wants to avoid God because God will demand that the heart surrender to him. And the heart hates that idea. The thing that the heart wants most is to be its own boss, its own God. And that's why we believe in predestination, because nobody would ever come to Christ if they were left to themselves. So God has to quietly and unilaterally come in behind the scenes and touch the heart and heal it just enough so that it can want Christ. And then the person comes to Jesus precisely because they want to at that point. But that's just the beginning. The heart needs a lot more work. And that's where the mind comes in. That's where the mind comes in. God wants us to partner with him in the renewing of our minds. We, and here's why we don't start with the heart. Because we can't. We don't have direct control over the heart. But we do have a great deal of control over what we set our minds upon. And what we set our minds upon is what gets presented to the heart for it to say yes or no to. And if we set our minds habitually on worldly cares and concerns or on wrong or sinful things, the mind will present those things to the heart and the heart will pick one of the bad things and that will determine what you do. But if we set our minds on God, if we set our minds on His goodness and His greatness and His love, if we fill our minds with the things of God and we see the beauty of God, 
then God uses that as a backdoor channel to begin retraining the heart to desire the good. And as the heart is retrained and reformed, the person begins to be able to pursue life with God with increasing intensity. And that's why the scriptures pay pay so much attention to how we use our minds. If you think about some of the scriptures that you know, think about, for instance, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. In other words, set your mind on the Lord Jesus. Set your mind on the commandments of God. Set your mind on what God has told us about himself and about the world around us. Set your mind on those things. Or Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And in the Greek, it's think constantly, regularly, habitually on these things. And that will change how you live. Or Psalm 119 and verse 11. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Say, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about the mind. Well, yes. What does it mean to have the word hidden in your heart? What it means is that the mind has brought the word of God before the heart so thoroughly and so often that the heart has begun desiring what the word of God says is good. And out of that desired word, the behavior is transformed towards godliness and towards the good. If you just hide his word in your mind, you'll know the good, but you won't yet be able to do the good because the heart has not absorbed it and taken it to itself. Now, it ought to go without saying that this is not a natural process. This is not something an unconverted person can do. It takes the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the continual empowering of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernaturally assisted process. God's grace has to be present in order for this to work. But you can rest assured that God's grace will be present in a reliable way if you begin this journey. Precisely because this is what God deeply wants for your life. It pleases him when you begin making efforts. I am just amazed. I've grown, I think I've grown more in the last, I don't know, year and a half, two years spiritually than at any other time in my life. And, and all I've done is begin to make these efforts that very often are very feeble and very imperfect. And I look, I look at what I'm doing and I think, God, there's no way you're going to find that pleasing or acceptable. It's just, it's just not very high quality here. And God is like, no, son, this delights me. Let me take it and let me do something with it and let me make it better. And I see God just almost playfully interacting with me. And I, I, I'm just thoroughly enjoying 
the whole process. It's fun. I, no, if anybody had told me the mortification of the flesh can be fun, I would have been like, no, that, that doesn't work, right? But when you love God, even just a little bit, and you see that killing those things that are separating you from God is bringing you closer to him, all of a sudden that becomes a delight, not a pain. And it all starts with where you set your mind, what you fill your mind with, where your mind habitually goes when you're not telling it what to do. Because all of those things can either work towards godliness or away from godliness. You know, I, I just want to close. There was a, a, a man who lived in France in the 1600s. And uh, I, can't re- I can't remember what his name was before he went into a little monastery in France. Um, of course, this is a Catholic country, right? So he's a Roman Catholic. And uh, we would disagree with that church on a lot of doctrinal points, but we would also say that God is a sovereign saver who saves people. And this little man, he'd been a soldier, and he got hurt, and he got sick, and he got retired. And so he ends up in Paris, and, and this is his experience. He said, one cold winter day, while carefully observing a desolate tree deprived of its leaves and its fruit, this man imagined it waiting soundlessly and patiently for the hopeful return of spring and summer. In that seemingly lifeless tree, he saw himself. And all at once, he glimpsed for the first time the magnitude of God's grace and the faithfulness of his love and the perfection of his sovereignty and the dependability of his providence. So he's converted right there, right? On the face of it, like the tree, he felt like he was dead. But suddenly he understood that the Lord had seasons of life awaiting him in the future. And at that moment, his soul experienced what he called the fact of God and a love for God that would burn bright for the rest of his days. So he goes into this Carmelite monastery. He's just a lay monk. And he doesn't have any education, so they put him to work in the kitchen. And so that's his life. For the rest of his life, he just worked in the kitchen in this monastery. And while he was doing this, he cultivated a simple way of communing with God in his everyday duties, cleaning pots and pans and whatever else he was called upon to do, which he termed practicing the presence of God. And in everything he did, whether it was spiritual devotions or worship in church or running errands or counseling and listening to people, no matter how mundane it was, no matter how tedious it was, no matter how small it was, he saw it as a way of expressing God's love. And he said, we can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan because I love him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before him who has given me grace to work. And afterwards I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. And he understood that the attitude and the motivation of his heart were the keys to experiencing the fullness of God's presence every moment, every day. 
And he said this, men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems to me like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. But it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of God? And so he began to think about every little detail of his life as important for his relationship to God. And he said, I began to live as if there was no one but me and God in the whole world. And he said, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were on my knees at the blessed sacrament. His name was Brother Lawrence. And he lived and died. I think he died in 1683. And his life was so amazing. Here's this little guy, no education, been a soldier, and he goes and he's a cook and a dishwasher. And he goes and he does the shopping for the monastery. And he lives such an astonishing life because he was able to set his mind more or less continually, on God. And it transformed his heart. And it transformed the rest of his life. His life was so amazing that word of it reached his bishop. Now, the bishop of Paris, that's a highly exalted position within the French Roman Catholic Church. That's like about as high as you can get and still be just French. And his bishop comes to him and says, tell me the secret of your life. And he looks at his bishop and he says, well, all right, if you really want to know, but if you're just asking questions, go away and leave me alone. i got stuff to do. And his bishop says, no, I, re I really want to know. And so they interviewed him and they recorded it. And you can buy it still today as a book. It's a spiritual classic called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. I commend it to you highly because in this we see a man who simply turned his thoughts towards God as often as he could out of love for God. And that increased in a spiral his ability both to love God and to think on God until it just transformed his whole life. And it didn't matter to him. He says, there are things I hate about my job in the kitchen. I don't like to go out and go shopping. I don't like to go out and try and find the best rutabagas or whatever and haggle with everybody over the prices. I, I don't like the rush of the crowds and he probably had PTSD or something. He said, but I have to go out and do that. So I say, okay, God, I gotta do something I don't like to do. Would you come with me, God? Would you make it sweet? Would you make it a time with you? And God says, yes. And he goes and he does that, which he hated, with a calm heart and a happy heart, filled with joy. There is nothing keeping you and I from living that way. Not one thing, except our desire to draw close to God. And then to channel our mind in a disciplined way so that we can think on Him. I would invite you to think about that, I would invite you to begin simply by filling your mind with verses of Scripture, 
and hiding it in your mind and keep bringing it to your heart, meditating on it, until it starts to change your heart. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer.